podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Cricket is trying to crack America. We'll chat through what that means and how that might affect our precious English summer. We'll look forward to the IPL, talk about Australia and India's World Cup hopes, the PSL final, the WPL and more. I'm Yaz Rana and with me this morning is Phil Walker, Ben Gardner and friend of the podcast, ESPN Cricket Info journalist Matt Roller. Matt, great to have you on, especially grateful to have you on on the day of the 100 draft, which is pretty much your Christmas day. Although <laughs> having read your pieces this morning, it sounds like you've got a pretty good idea of what's going to happen anyway. Let's kick off with the news from America. Major League Cricket unveiled their first lot of marquee overseas Signings, it included Anrik Norkia, Wanindu Hasaranga and Quinton de Kock. The tournament takes place in July. Matt, this feels like a big deal on two counts. One, in that it feels like cricket's best bet to crack America. And two, it might have some short and long-term ramifications for the English summer. Yeah, it's um, it, it's something that's been talked about for a little while. But I think until you get to the point where you actually see Mahela Jaya-Wardner and Stephen Fleming in a room and... Uh, over in the US, you see the IPL team identities unveiled and you see um, things sort of start to look like a proper cricket tournament. You think this is probably going to happen and this might actually have some pretty significant uh, ramifications. As you say, I think one of the um, things English cricket has been quite lucky with generally around franchise cricket is that the majority of leagues, obviously the IPL is the, the, the main exception, um, but the majority of leagues take place in the English winter. So it hasn't really... Um, beyond the sort of elite level players really pose that much of an issue. Whereas now um, we're potentially seeing, you know, I think we'll get to a point this summer and definitely next summer um, where you'll have players on on white ball contracts with counties who are are angling to go and play in the States and go and play in the Caribbean Premier League and that sort of thing if if that's um, where they feel as though the financial opportunities are greatest. And yeah, from English cricket's point of view, it's quite a... um, I suppose an anxiety-inducing time, the potential to lose some um, big draw players. I mean, Alex Hales is probably the the best example of someone who'll probably be involved in Major League Cricket in its first season. Um, And and yeah, I think that's that's quite a confronting moment for the county game where you're suddenly thinking, you know, from Hales' point of view as a 35-year-old white ball specialist looking to... Um, you know, make make the most of the last few years of his career, having won a T20 World Cup and, um, you know, achieve what he wants to in international cricket. It's suddenly getting to a point of thinking, well, you know, next summer, for example, is he going to, is he going to sign again for knots to play in the blast or is he going to try and take double the money to have a, a fun couple of weeks playing on some nice Florida golf courses with a bit of cricket at the weekends, you know? Can someone tell me specifically what the MLC is? what it is amounting to as it stands the venues is an interesting point because i think that's there is the question over whether this thing will be cricket's route into capturing you know a, a general american interest audience um and you know there are six teams uh, which have uh identities tied to uh various cities around the us so there's the uh, mi new york or my new york however you want to say it um there's the the texas super kings uh, various other ones. Sure I smoked a few of them. The <laughs> LA Knight Riders is a franchise you'd want on your Crick Info profile. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, LA Knight Riders. 
that's strong, isn't it? That, that could be sort of like a noir TV show, couldn't it? <laughs> um, uh, but so there's, but at the moment, I think all the games this year are going to be played in in Houston. Uh, so if the, the only if you're a cricket fan in New York, the only thing that will make you support MI New York is if you like the words New York, I guess, at the moment. Um, I think it's it's hoped that that will change in the future and that that will be uh, that you know if you if you do have like a sort of traveling circus where you have some games played in New York, some games played in in LA, some in San Francisco or wherever else, maybe that is something that could attract uh, more of a general audience. But for now, it's it, it's it's there are teams with identities, but it's a tournament being played basically in, in a hub in Houston where the whole thing is kind of being run we have a problem out of. Yeah, uh, and I think I think it was actually launched at the uh, at the Space Center. <laughs> that was where the draft was held. Yeah, um, and on on twenty twenty three, I get what you were saying, Matt. But in twenty twenty three, it only clashes with finals day from an English summer point of view, and a couple of rounds of the county championship. So we, know we had one question specifically on the hundred. Cody asked, with the creation of the MLC and big names like Stark and Nokia opting out with bigger contracts available in America, where does that leave the hundred? And how likely is it that private enterprises are introduced to increase salary pots? And I guess Nokia, I think you wrote in your piece, Nokia is being paid pretty much the same in America as you would have been in the hundred, but for playing less cricket. Fastball's going to take that, isn't he? It's it's still regrettable, though, if that is the case. I mean, I assume that the money would be oh, clearly right. I'm coming at this quite cold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty self-evident. But I, I assume the money would be double, triple what they'd be getting, even for the top brand, top bracket, 120 grand from from the hundred. If it's equivalent, then it's almost even more of a smash in the face for the 100, right? Because it, if you're a player like Norkia, I mean, it's not like he's bowling constantly in, in 100 cricket anyway. So you're choosing, in effect, you're sort of saying the 100 really has no credibility, right? If, if, if you're tossing a, to- a coin between playing in America or playing in England, uh, and there's only a tiny discrepancy between the, the number of balls that he's going to be bowling, right, over the course of those few weeks. So he's basically saying there's very little little kudos, very little credibility, very little heft um, in his mind for the 100 compared to to some latest ruse over the other side of the Atlantic. I I think the biggest sort of fear for the 100 from that point of view would be that um, you can double up quite nicely if you do Major League cricket, then have a week or two off and then go and play in the CPL in mid-August. So that might, in, that does in sound time, like a pretty nice summer. <laughs> sound like a pretty good option rather than potentially spending, you know, three months here playing for a couple of different teams. One in I the think you're going to pick one out there so. and, and, and lose, <laughs> lose the whole region. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I, I do think in, in time it will become a, 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 will become an issue. I think we've seen, you know, we've seen a lot of players have registered for the 100 draft. It's still something that, you know, leading overseas players want to play in if their schedule permits. I think the issue is going to be Probably not this year so much, but in two or three years' time, if Major League Cricket takes off, if it becomes rather than what it is at the moment, which I think is going to be, I think it's literally five games per team plus then the knockouts um, across two weeks. So it's a pretty good pretty good gig if you can just play a couple of games, a um, couple of games a week, and then that's basically it. But yeah, if it becomes a three or four week tournament and suddenly the salaries sort of reflect that and increase with the, with the length of the tournament, then suddenly it becomes a bit more of a concern, I think. I think it's quite an optimistic hope and I don't really know how it happens but I wonder if, if there's a way where counties can sort of make these franchise T20 leagues almost understand their importance in the whole thing right like we saw this over the winter a lot of these leagues that are happening kind of wouldn't really work if county cricket wasn't the way it was like what you had like close to 100 I think English players playing uh, in various different competitions all over 
all over the winter. And without that kind of strength of talent, like those competitions would be far weaker. And you, I guess you'd hope it would get to a stage where it's not just counties talking to players saying like, okay, we'll release you for this much. And maybe we don't pay you for that bit of time and you go and earn loads of money. But actually counties sort of like, maybe they have to get paid a release fee or something by some of these tournaments. Northampton would be the feeder school for KKR or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think the problem with it is that just the time of the year, because obviously the, the reason that a lot of those county players are so attractive is because they're not playing any cricket. So I think the what you will see now is that, um, that you know, the South African, New Zealand, Australian players who sometimes can't play in the leagues that the England players do play in over the winter because they're in their own domestic season will now go to CPL and Major League because of the factors in their winter and will have the opportunity to play, I would expect anyway. Yeah, I guess, but I do, I do also feel there's just a stronger strength and depth in England just because there are the, the 18 teams. Like you look, you see the big bash when the Australian test players are not in there and that is a, a can be quite a low quality tournament at times in a way that the 100 even when the test players weren't available uh, was still of a high quality, I would say. And the blast, I think, would reflect that as well. In general, obviously, you do get some weak blast sides and there's not an endless pool as we see in the, the one-day cup when uh, when all the players are kind of unavailable and you're sort of dredging from, you know, whatever club side or or county third eleven you can find, that sort of thing. But I do think that it, there is just like a, the, like, I don't know, I guess the, the 100th strongest player in England is stronger than the 100th strongest in whichever other country you can find. And that means that, you know, a guy like, Gus Atkinson, who is, you know, still actually a kind of a fringe player at county level, is able to to go and like be a useful component of a squad overseas in a way that I think you wouldn't get from other players. And and to the T Twenty leagues do do need that, I guess. Matt, trying to get ahead of uh, the the IPL owners who are getting involved in these competitions, they're getting involved in a lot of competitions. What are they What are they trying to achieve? There are so many T Twenty leagues. Uh, we're ten minutes into the episode, and a lot of people listening to this don't really follow T20 cricket and probably can't believe that there are so many of them that people actually watch them. What are they trying to do? Um, and with America, I kind of get it more because you have an existing audience of cricket that I think people probably don't appreciate how many people there already are in America who follow cricket. Um, so I understand why you'd want to start something there. But like, what what is the end goal? They're paying so much money and they're paying more money than the ECB can pay top players of the 100 we know where the money's coming from, but are they are they just hemorrhaging this money? Like, surely some of these tournaments must lose so much with what they're paying players. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's also really interesting to sort of track how different franchises have gone about it completely differently in terms of the sort of explosion, I guess, in leagues over the last however long. So you look at um, Royal Challengers Bangalore, they're probably one of the franchises that most people in the UK would have heard of compared to some. Um, they've obviously been an established brand for a long, long period of time. They were one of the inception teams at the IPL. Um, and they are very much just targeted the Indian market. So they bought a team in the Women's Premier League and no other ones around the world. So they clearly see that their market, as they see it, is India. That's where they're going to make money. They've got probably the, the biggest Indian, biggest name Indian player in both men's and women's cricket in Kohli and Mandana. Um, and that's that's exactly what they're focusing on. Whereas they can't buy a win. Yeah. <laughs> but then whereas you have other franchises, um, Mumbai Indians, KKR, who are very much on the complete opposite end and expansionist and trying to have this global footprint and cement as many teams as possible around the world. And it's a, it's a very good question what the end goal is. I think um, there, there was obviously a quite telling interview that um, Venki Mysore, who's the chief exec of KKR, did with uh, Tim Wigmore in The Telegraph last summer where he said, you know, long term, why couldn't we have a player contracted to us for 12 months a year? And it does feel like to some extent there might be this point where, you know, much as there's 
an inevitable resistance from other national boards about the IPL growing much more than it already has. I think it's going to last just over two months um, this year, but it's generally kept a pretty similar length of time as a window. But you almost have, a, I, I think the the ideal would for that from from the IPL owner's point of view would be for the IPL to be as long as possible. And much as that's probably going to be impossible, just given cricketing politics, you almost have mini IPLs popping up around the world in these different time zones, different countries. Um, and, and, you know, you get to the point where if a player can play six months of the year for Knight Riders franchises or six months of the year for MI, that then suddenly those franchises sort of even further entrench the power and control that they already have. So I think it's a lot about um, politics as much as money because I, I, I sort of bent into that. Why would a... New York-based cricket fan have any affiliation to this team beyond the name? Um, you know they can't see them play in their own city, but I, I think there's a sort of yeah a subplot to it rather than it simply being we're going to target the American market and make loads of money through commercial deals there. Do you think is there possibly a, a, a talent spotting uh, exercise going on here as well? And actually, so we talk about say you talk about the Night Riders, we talk about cricket in the Caribbean quite a lot and the health of it, or the you know the declining relevance of it to to people there. Is is do you think the IPL owners basically see a future where um, the the cricket in Trinidad and Tobago say is basically all funneled into Night Riders cricket rather than towards a West Indies national team? If you're a promising young player, you're playing for you know you get snapped up by the Night Riders Academy, and then maybe there's some sort of junior tournament they can play in, and then you play in the if you're good enough you play in Trinidad Night Riders in the CPL, and then you like the very best get snapped up for the IPL and and, and funneled up that way, and then that could actually you could almost see that being replicated maybe in South Africa as well. Uh, if cricket does take off in the US, I guess that would be the model that would be there from from the very start. Um, and I, I guess they'd be looking into to other markets as well. Like I suppose, what, would, would Sri Lanka be a possibility at some point? And maybe Bangladesh, I don't know. And, and is that what we might see going forward, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the good sort of um, parallel to draw would be with, with football. And we see that already with, you know, the City Football Group, for example. Manchester City's owners have this you know, huge number of teams around the world, including in Mumbai, I think, by the way. I think Mumbai City are part of that group. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, we've seen with them, there's certainly an element of, of sort of talent sharing around teams where a Man City player will go on loan to a team in Spain or India or Australia or the US or wherever it happens to be and will then still be sort of under the same support staff and the same structure and the same contract even. Um, but we'll be playing for a different team and we'll have that developmental exposure I guess and I'm sure we'll see um, you know we've I think we already have to some extent but people um, you know potential fringe players or young players who are coming into IPL franchises are not quite at the level of IPL overseas player level yet um, who are sort of getting opportunities to develop in the winter and I'm sure sure it'll be used in that way as well. Before we move on let's head to Mark Butcher. Uh, Mark's been quite unwell so uh, very grateful for his time. Big news this week is is the stuff around America. It sounds like centrally contracted England players won't be allowed to go for 2023. That doesn't mean an awful lot because there's not much of an overlap but how do you see that changing down the line? Um, well I mean the, the, the overlapping situation is, is, is interesting. I mean the, the as we've seen with things like the CPL, the IPL, even um, the PCL, they kind of they always tend to be movable feasts, don't they? There's very few um, tournaments that, that that end up sort of set in a in a in a particular window in such a way as the the hundred is perhaps for us or the the big bashes for Australia. 
Um, and so that what what it what seems to be relatively um, uh, unobtrusive in 2023 might land right slap bang in the middle of the of the hundred next year, say, or something even more um, important. So, uh, look, uh, the, the difficulty is unless you are contracted by the board, then there's not a great deal that people can do. I mean, you, you know, your county, your blast um, salary, for example, for players who might be on white ball only contracts could very easily get blown out of the water with a combination of, um, you know, major league cricket and perhaps then the CPL afterwards. Uh, and if you've gone down the road of wanting to play white ball cricket only, then it might be more attractive to do that, both of those things. Um, you know, with a with a break somewhere in the states, than it is to to sort of come back to a few weeks in the hundred and then go back off again. Uh, it's 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 basically the the biggest nightmare that the English cricket has is that the one thing that it has in its favour above and beyond everything else, which is the Northern Hemisphere summer, suddenly gets eroded at both ends and in the middle by a Caribbean Premier League at one end, the IPL at the beginning, and then um, you know lots and lots of Indian money flying into uh, to a new league in, in the States. Um, and, and then all bets are off. You know, in, in the past, we've always, we've been a little bit critical of India of um, uh, protecting, over-protecting their players to the extent where, you know, if you're if you're an IPL player, then you don't play anywhere else. But that, you know, that's the end of it. But you can understand as to why that becomes a very attractive proposition. If all of a sudden your window is, a, is under attack from everywhere, um, and not necessarily just about the about the window of time, but the uh, but the amount of money that then that's available for the players to um, uh, to earn, and and that's the bottom line with it all, isn't it? Mm. If 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 the uh, if the purses are huge, I mean, I, I'm sort of looking at the um, you know the, the team purses for the M- MLC this year are some are a million, right? And eight hundred thousand of that can be allocated to overseas players. Now the, the overseas players don't go into the draft. They are sort of, they have arrangements that are made sort of outside of the draft. Um, and so for the sort of like the top American players, I think their top bracket is something like 75,000 US or something. Um, which for the for the players coming from overseas is, is next to nothing. But the big pot lies with the overseas pot. Um, and therefore there are going to be a lot of guys not just from England, but from all over the place, who are going to be looking at that competition and thinking, well, you know, does my is my financial future is the way that I'm setting out my my year, my my calendar year as a as a white ball player for hire. Um, you know, do 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 I get better value for going there um, and skipping out maybe the blast or skipping a bit of the hundred, whatever it might be, um, in order to kind of maximise the time that I'm out there playing and the amount of money I'm earning for it. I've seen some suggestions saying that. Counties should block players, if possible, going over. So many English players now play white ball cricket overseas who are miles away from getting a central contract and they're miles away from England selection. And the possibility is you you earn money there, uh, quite a lot of money for a very short tournament, whereas your county deal is, uh, you know, it's decent money, but it's not huge money and it's for playing a lot of cricket. Um, How how do you think counties should handle it? Because it's a difficult one because... You want players to earn as much money as possible and be financially secure, but at the same time, like you, you spent so much time developing these players, just let them go during the county season. I don't know; it's, it's going to be a difficult one. I, I, I mean, Keezy and I had this very conversation, didn't we? And, and neither of us could solve it because, um, you know, you can you can say to players, "No, you can't go. No, you can't go and earn the money." 
so then they re- they retire what you know retire from playing whatever format it is that you don't want them to miss out on and and you lose them altogether um it's a really really tough one it's unbelievably tough and and, and the, the difficulty is is that you can't the county cricket can't suddenly find pots of gold where they're where they're able to kind of induce their players not to go off and earn this money elsewhere. You know their their budgets are pretty much static, um, and so if somebody does if the if the if, if the offers come in and they are, you know, if you get somebody offers you two hundred and fifty thousand US to go and play three or four weeks in uh, in Texas or whatever it might be, it blows your county contract out the water. Mm. You know. For the whole summer, <laughs> it's really, really hard. I, yeah. I, I honestly, I, that, and that, there is the terrifying thing that if if you lose, if the one thing that the English cricket has, which is its, which is its northern summer, uh, northern hemisphere summer, if that becomes um, something that is no longer, uh, no longer a jewel in the crown, then what does it have? What do mm. you have beyond being able to pay your centrally contracted players a lot of money to play for to represent England? The hundred itself, you know, that that competition has been more about trying to trying to shore up the finances of the game overall. That that competition is not putting big money in the players' pockets. Mm. Um, and I, I can hear the fans sitting out there going, "Well, hang on a second, you know, what about us? What about the people that pay to watch it and all this kind of stuff?" And it's all very well. Players all, all get really well looked after in comparison to normal people, anyway. Um, and and again, I, I can't I can't offer much in the way of um, in, in the way of sort of solace because if if the if the people who are doing the work are being offered more money to do it elsewhere, what do you expect them to do? Have you have you got any ideas? Forget about English players for a second. That when you had the the, the rise of um, freelance franchise cricket players, a lot of that was out of financial necessity. So if you're a South African or a New Zealander, you don't earn that much money playing domestic cricket you kind of your only major earner was international cricket if if you even qualify international cricket as that so there was almost like a financial necessity to play in all these leagues um obviously county county cricket pays decently but it's not stratospheric money i just kind of wonder how satisfying it is to be if you were an english cricketer who just played the leagues all year round, hopping from one three-week tournament to another. You know, you you shared the hotels with uh, loads of players in different leagues around the world. Um, I, I wonder about someone like Sam Billings and James Vince, who captain their sides at home, who enjoy the, you know, the, the grind of a county season, but also goes to these tournaments for three or four weeks. Like, how satisfying is that in comparison? Surely they derive so much more from being part of the same team for ages. Sam has Sam has come to the come to the point in his career now where he really just you know he's, he's, he says it himself he's carried enough drinks he just wants to go out there and play but the sort of like the idea of a the idea of a sort of like a cricketing um, sort of legacy or the, or the satisfaction that you get from it often comes later later on anyhow you know when you when you're in your youth and you're kind of out there trying to be as good as you can be and um, you know trying to make a name for yourself. Um, the offers when they come along, it's it's very difficult to look that much further further ahead, unless of course you kind of you find yourself in a situation where you're kind of like you're a first pick for England in in um, you know in test matches or in in the white ball white ball games, and you feel that you're secure in that in that um, <clears throat> in that arena. 
and you're contracted and you've got a little bit of security around it. If you're not in that situation, then then it's very, very easy to have your head turned. To, you know, you've been offered this. If I go and have a great IPL, you know, if I get into the team and if I, you know, have a great tournament, then I, that'll be my route to get back into the England team. And quite often, you know, with Sam, Sam being a great example, he got picked all of those times. He kind of, he, he, he had little moments where it was great, then found himself on the bench for the rest of the time. And then you're not playing any cricket. So the thing that he was chasing after, i.e. the route back into an England squad by, by by doing great things, playing in the IPL, kind of got shut off to him by the fact that he couldn't make it into the team. You know, and, and these are these are all sort of the risks that you take. But you know, I, I don't I don't know I don't know what I would have done given the same circumstances. Because I can it's very easy for me to sit here and say, uh, well, you know, all I wanted to do was play Test match cricket, but that was the only choice I had. You know. <laughs> The, the choices that are available to players now are, 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 are so much greater than they were when I started. I cannot put myself in their shoes. So I'm not going to sit here and be holier than now and say, well, you should want to play for your county over and above everything and you should want to play for England over and above everything. Um, because in the back of their minds, I'm sure they do. But the reality of it is they know that only only a very, very small percentage of the of England's first-class cricketers go on to have long careers doing that, and in the meantime, there is an amount of money to be made that was that was unheard of back in the day when I was starting. Mm. So the the choices before them, are, are, <coughs> yeah, there are lots of them, but they're but they're bloody hard. Mm. Um, you know, maybe we maybe the person to speak to in all this, if we, maybe we can tee up an interview with Mister Hales and see what he has to say about the whole thing, because mm. you know it's it's. It, it, lots of people will have their views. I, I have my view based on based on the fact that I, that I played the game and that I have a, I have some form of insider knowledge. People will have their view based on the fact that they that they write about it and that they know a lot about it. A lot of people will have their view simply from the from being fans and what they think the player should do. But you want to hear it from somebody that kind of has, has had to weigh up all of these decisions and actually make real life calls that will affect them, you know, not just while they're playing but but into their into their retirement. And you know, and I know enough stories of, of players. I mean, nearly all of the, <laughs> nearly all of the stories of players who who had 10, 15 year county careers who then found life not a great deal of fun once the once the cricket playing was over, having not been able to to store up enough sort of money and funds in order to just kind of to keep life going at a the way that they'd become used to it while they played. So, you know, the, these guys that have an opportunity that that isn't going to be an issue for them now. And that's, and therein lies the rub with all this. How much did you talk about anxieties about your, your post-cricket career when you were in the, still in the dressing room? I know, I know that you did a lot of media work while you're still playing. So I guess that's slightly different, but obviously the money is different now, but players must still be worried about, you know, I do this thing until I'm between 33 and 40, but I've no idea what I'm doing after that. You know that that must be something that occupies a lot of players' minds. I'm sure it does, and 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 it did back then. Although, you know, being that we weren't the thoroughly modern men that we are nowadays, we probably didn't talk about it quite so much. You know, openly. Um, you know, your your fears and anxieties were not welcome in the dressing room most of the time, so you didn't bring it up that much. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't I don't I don't think that that's going to be any different now than it was then, and so and so which therefore makes the the enticing prospect of of um you know picking up these gigs wherever you can, um you know if if selected, I mean you know think about the amount of players that are going to be put forward, um you know worldwide to fill up 
one of the nine slots in each of those six sides. You know, virtually everybody in the entire in the entire cricket playing world is going to have their name in that hat, and so you've got to you're going to have to do well to get yourself in there, and then you've got to do well to get yourself into the playing eleven mm. to earn your money. So none of these things are risk free, um, but you know, it's it, there are choices there, and the amounts of money for for relatively short periods of time are, are eye watering, really, in in cricketing terms. And I think if if the if the major league cricket thing goes off, um, and who knows, you know, the, the America tried soccer as as they called it back in the back in the day in the seventies and whatever when they had Pele and, and people playing and whatever they gave it plenty of goes before it kind of held at all. You never know; it might hold this time. You've got the the massive Indian diaspora over there. You've got um, you know Mumbai Indians, Chennai Super Kings, Kolkata Knight Riders all throwing money that way. Um, and they tend tend not to they tend not to fail those guys now, uh, mm. and so there's a very good chance that it might hold first time. And if it does, then wow, then then look out, um, things are going to look even more different um, in three or four years' time than they have done over the last three or four years. Yeah, I, I always think there's there's like an element of desperation whenever cricket talks about trying to crack America. It's like please like us, please like us. Anyway, lots to ponder. Obviously, uh, cheers to you, time Butch, and catch you next week. Moving on to the the hundred draft briefly, as I mentioned earlier, it's happening today. I think when the this podcast is out, the draft, which is a two hour televised affair on Sky, will probably have taken place. Um, Matt, I've learned a lot about the hundred draft from reading your your preview pieces this morning, including what the Welsh word for hard graft is, um, <laughs> which Tammy Beaumont mentioned uh, when you when you talked to her. I find it quite interesting how it impacts players so much, but there's almost like a cloak and dagger element to it. Like we it, we don't really know how it works un- until you read your pieces this morning. Yeah, it's um it, it's very strange and it's something that I think has, yeah, as you say, a completely skewed thing in that there's often very, very little interest in um, the draft. I think there's some level of sort of underlying interest. I think people still find it quite a curious thing and um, are intrigued by why a player that they don't think is that good is worth three times as much as a player they think is pretty good. Um, but I don't think there's sort of an obsessive, you know, I don't think the random cricket fan would know which team Sam Hain played for last summer necessarily. Um, but I, as you say, it can sort of make or break players years. And I think in the long term, you know, have quite a significant trajectory on their careers. So, for example, you know, I spoke to Steve Eskenazi over a coffee last week and he was saying, you know, that he's he's obviously done really well in the blast for three years, but has never got a contract in the hundred. And he was saying he's found it really difficult in the winters where everyone said, we really like your numbers. But the first question they always ask him is, but how come you didn't get picked in the hundred? Because if, if, if you're anyone in the world of white ball cricket, you should surely be playing in your own country's best domestic T20 competition. And he's found that, you know, it's a question he can't really answer. He says, well, look, you know, this is the feedback I've got. But as soon as you start giving stuff like that away, then you're doing yourself down. So it's something that, I think can actually affect players' livelihoods and earnings and all that sort of thing in a way that um, doesn't necessarily get seen. And often people making decisions are doing it on a sort of, you know, it might be a very slight um, nudge from an agent that they've had two weeks ago that makes the decision between player A and player B who have pretty similar stats. And um, yeah, it it is a very sort of strange underworld of, yeah, people... um, people in in offices and on phone calls and sending whatsapps back and forth who are actually having quite big influences on players careers in a lot of cases can i ask you do you see 
do you envision a, a repeat of last year where the the big England players who have the power almost over and above their paymasters, uh, you know, pick and choose and inevitably deign to play in most games? Do you see that happening again? I would be, given when the 100 is this year, so it's different this year in that there's no England games that clash directly with it, but it, the, the tournament Famously. starts the day Famously after so. the end of the Ashes. So at the end of five tests in six weeks, do I think Stokes will play on the second night of the 100? Absolutely no chance. Um, and I would be relatively surprised to see if someone like Stokes or Besto play any any more than one or two games in the season. I think... Where it is different this year is that for players like, say, Harry Brook or Ben Duckett or someone like that who don't have central contracts or players who feel as though they have something to prove in white ball cricket, like a Crawley or a Pope or someone like that, I think they might potentially have a few days off after the Ashes and then actually throw themselves into it because the money's good and they feel as though it's a good showcase, a good platform. Ollie Pope would play 24 hours after the... Yeah, the denouement here. He'd, he'd be out. He'd be out there again. Can't get enough of it. Roll out of the dressing room. Um, in brackets, massive brackets. Daniel Lawrence, captain of London Spirit. Mm, yeah, good stuff. Right? I think he's going to be a very good captain. But then I would say that, wouldn't I? But I do. I think that might be the way that he sort of sustains his his love for the game. If England don't come calling anytime soon, I think that could be a good thing. And I think he is obviously, um, as he said to me and said to many others, he's he's tapping Wesley on the shoulder all the time at Essex. I can see him being a very good. Uh, domestic skipper and England will need another ODI number four at some point as well if if Milan is likely to be in that spot for the for the World Cup um, and if Dan Lawrence has a good summer he'll be in that mix along with everyone else like, along with everyone else yeah sure yeah, along with loads <laughs> and loads of others but you know there's, there's a lot of like isn't there uh, as everyone knows uh, it, on drafts in general do you, do you think they'll be phased out at some point because I was thinking like when you know with what we're talking about with IPL sides and or IPL franchises owning lots of players and then wanting to have that continuity between teams drafts and auctions act against that like you lose control over who you can sign and that sort of thing and especially uh, that's what the story most reading your piece with the ben duckett thing he he has a team he wants to go to uh but they're what third or fourth in the running order and someone else could just kind of ruin his summer by saying uh, uh yeah well, actually we'll have you kind of thing um and it, it, it's it's i mean especially in english sport we don't really have drafts anyway and this is kind of like a, a thing lifted out because we've seen it's worked elsewhere but actually almost as these competitions as the teams build identities like I think people have said maybe the iPad has had its last mega auction for example and the rest are just to fill spots here and there like do you think we'll move to maybe we'll just have like a, a new players in a draft sort of thing but actually the established players just move around through transfers and that's what happens basically yeah it's tricky I can I can sort of see both sides of it um so, yeah, I mean, Duckett's a good example of someone who, you know, I, I think he knows where he thinks he's going. Everyone seems to know on the circuit where he's going, but, um, you know, there is a chance it could be somewhere else. Because Where's he going? Uh, Birmingham. But it, it could be a could be a complete curveball, you know. By the time this pod goes out, it could be a Southern Brave player because they have the pick before and they could decide that they're going to screw up Birmingham's plans. Um, and it is it is a strange situation that because obviously he would probably rather play you know an hour drive from home rather than staying in a hotel at the Aegis Bowl for a month. But um, yeah, it, it will be a really interesting thing to to sort of track whether that will keep happening. I personally think drafts and auctions are important for T Twenty competitions in that they provide some level of transparency that you don't otherwise get, and they should in theory provide some level of competitive balance as well. Obviously, you know, in the hundred that hasn't hasn't happened at times. Like Welsh Fire obviously had a um, pretty miserable time of it last year having had a lot of choices at the draft and who knows what will happen with them this year but 
personally, I think it's important that you don't have, um, you know, hugely dominant teams who are, especially, you know, in, in leagues where um, there's that financial side of it, where some owners have five times the purse of the other. Um, I think, you know, I, I think it's a good thing that you have that T20 leagues keep some level of competition and keep some level of uh, fluctuations in teams' performances. I don't think we, I personally don't think it would be a good thing for T20 cricket if you had a sort of uh, La Liga style system where you had a couple of dominant teams in every single league who won every single year um, and the teams who are left behind just you know lost because of their lack of financial clout I just don't really think that would work in the franchise cricket world that's two football references so far on the pod <laughs> um, with, with the draft I'm just really looking forward to what the 2023 version of the Joss Butler Dane Villas moment <laughs> will be when in 2019 Dale, Dane Villas goes for 125 grand and his Manchester teammate Joss Butler who's never really had a great poker face anyway he just looks like what the hell's going on because also as a wicketkeeper that's the thing it's like Dane Villas wicketkeeper 125k and Butler's like <laughs> thought I was doing that <laughs> the IPL is not too far away uh, we're not going to do an extensive IPL preview uh, although we do have an exclusive interview with two former KKR players on, on next week's pod uh, we will, though, as ever... Ah, I see what you... They're very yeah. clever, yes. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Um, we will, though, as ever, focus on the English interest. There are 13 England players uh, involved in the IPL. Uh, Stokes and Moeen are at CSK. Salt is at Delhi. Uh, Mark Wood is at Lucknow. Archer at Mumbai. Livingston and Curran at Punjab. Uh, Root and Butler at Rajasthan Royals. Willie and Topley at RCB. And then Brooke and Rashid at Sunrisers Hyderabad. Uh, Will Jacks was ruled out of the tournament last week, uh, which is obviously desperately frustrating news for him. Looking at the squad list, I feel like how various English players go could, could go a long way to determining how the tournament goes. A lot of money spent on English players who either have... Not much IPL experience, no IPL experiences in some cases, or haven't had a big tournament yet or for, for some time. Um, Harry Brook is obviously very very exciting to see how he goes. A lot of money spent on Curran after the World Cup. I want to focus on the two of the bigger English names, uh, Stokes and, and Root. Root's finally at the IPL, he's got his wish. But will he actually play, Ben? Uh, I would not expect him to be in Rajasthan Roll's first team. I think, looking at their squad, I think Butler, Hetmar and Trent Bolt would be three overseas spots and then they've got Devdut, Paddock Allen, Yushasvi, Jaiswal who are two uh, very talented young Indian top order bats. So that's probably their top order sorted which is where Roots would likely bat. So I'd expect Donovan Ferreira or Jason Holder to fill out their overseas quota in the 11. Especially with Butler with the role he takes uh, in the uh, in the IPL as more of an, an anchor type thing which is what you'd think you'd have Root in there to do and especially with two guys there who are consistent but not you know explosive exactly I think you know he, he's there if, if maybe if Hetmar loses form Root might come in and it's possible as well that Root could make quite a good sort of impromptu finisher kind of thing it's not out of the question that good players find a way to uh to fulfill a role you wouldn't originally expect um so I'd, I'd be I guess I'd probably be surprised if he doesn't play at all but I'd also be surprised if he played more than like a third of their games I think yeah I, I completely agree with that I think from Root's point of view, I would imagine this is something like a you know six-week training camp in um, Indian conditions leading into a World Cup later this year. He's obviously not played as much white ball cricket as he would have liked over the past probably three years since the start of the pandemic. Obviously, you know he was pouring all of his energy and time into the Test captaincy at the start, and has 
probably not had the opportunities he would have liked since just because of how the schedule's been. So yeah, I, as far as I can tell, I, I agree with Ben entirely that I doubt he'll start for Rajasthan. He might play a couple of games here and there. Um, but yeah, I would imagine that he'll he'll still probably get something out of the experience just from spending time. You know, he, he's got six weeks to two months, depending on when England might bring players back um, in Indian conditions with Butler and Sangakara to rub shoulders with. And I think it'll be probably pretty good for him heading into that 50. Sangakara, the coach at Rajasthan. Yeah. Oh, I think that might sway it for Root. I really do. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously a fabulous pedigree player and he has, as he said himself, and Matt's just alluded to, you know, he, he, there were necessary sacrifices that he had to make as England captain. And, and, and he gave an interview to the magazine a few months ago saying exactly that. Um, but he's he burns with fury in his own way that he's he, he has that kind of that door has been shut on him. And it's not with the other big monster players of, of the era. You know, Kane Williamson has probably played, you know, 70, 80, 90 games for sunrisers and various others uh joe root is undoubtedly a an equivalent t20 player white ball player to to the likes of kane williamson and yet that door has been shut throughout his his career and uh and i think now obviously having been released from the the burden of the captaincy and having got to a point now where he can uh, have a little bit more of a selfish attitude quite right too he's earned the right to to do that uh, I think he'll be absolutely desperate to get into that side and to establish him, himself. I, I see what you're saying that it it can, at the very least, be a nice training camp in the sunshine, and you know it's going to be good fun. How, however, it, it plays out for him, but I think he wants to leave his mark on that tournament, and it may it might not happen for him at all. And I might be way off here, but uh, I've always believed that he's a far better T20 player than um, than the numbers would suggest. I.e., the the number of appearances would suggest. Uh, and yeah, I, if Sanger's there, I can see that he, he's going to look for someone at three or four to sit in, do the job, go at 130 rather than Hetmeyer's 150 every couple of weeks. And uh, I can see it happening. I think the other thing that works in his favour is that the tournament is going back to the more traditional structure of, of moving around the country and with various venues and conditions coming into play. I can see that if you turn up at, you know, at the Chennai Super King Stadium or whatever, and you see that there's a, it's going to turn a bit because they prepared that for Jadeja, uh, etc. Um, then you might want to extend the batting order and then Roots Bowling also comes into play. You can sort of pick and there is an all-rounder as a guy who can sort of make of course, a, yeah. a, a 40 ball 50 that gets you up to a defendable 140 in certain conditions. And that is going to be much more of a factor in this tournament than in the last couple of seasons. Matt Riley, you know stuff about T20 cricket. I've gathered that. Um, a dozen games with Joe Root at three or a dozen games with Hetmeyer at five or six, um, if they both play to a kind of, you know, adequate level of form that, you know, they're not out of it, but they're not sparkling, which way would you go? Hetmeyer. Would you? Yeah, I think he's done enough over the last couple of years. I think especially last year, he was really, really good for Rajasthan. Um, I understand that he's a bit mercurial maybe compared to Root, but I think... Um, I would expect it's, it's, him to it's have against, a much bigger it's against impact that on the turning tournament. ball as well, right? In the last five overs, yeah. It's like it's it's about the other players in the squad as well. Like if you pick root there, then you're leaving out one of Padakal or Jaiswell at number three. Yeah, whereas you've, you've who, already got Samson as well. Exactly. So, so your, your domestic batters are, are really good. Oh, he's not going to play. I'm excited about Stokes and Dhoni combining at, at Chennai. Uh, Stokes is 
hadn't scored a run in the IPL for three years. He played one game in 2021. Phil, that, that, that's a tantalising prospect. Stokes working in cahoots with Dhoni on pitches that might be particularly suited to their brand of cricket. That should be good to watch at the very least. Yeah, and he probably owes the IPL a little bit, Stokes, you know, because as you say, in some ways it made him as a world star, but he's been quite quiet, quite subdued when he has played and obviously hasn't played that much anyway, as you say, the last three years. Uh, but he re- he remains in that top bracket, you know the amount of money that has been spent on him. Um, just talking about the the ducket thing earlier, Stokes told me, um, and no doubt would have told a hundred other people that he was definitely going to a franchise that he didn't go to. And twenty four hours later, he woke up and he was a, a super giant, whatever they were called, the Pune side from then. But he was absolutely sure he was going to somewhere else, um, and told everybody that night. Yeah, woke up expecting to be one thing and found out he was, he was going to be a, a super giant instead and that was that that was the first real dazzling moment I think for English fans just realizing just how utterly era defying this stuff is now um, but yeah you're right him and him and him and Donny in the middle order uh, I assume Stokes would bat about four or five I mean when talking about that Pune year when he was a bit in and out but he made that amazing hundred didn't he when they were four down for not many him and Dhoni were the engine room in that side, but then he also opened opened up for Rajasthan a couple of times as well. So I assume he'll be in the middle order. Um, but yeah, he does owe the tournament a little bit, I think. And such is his uh, position in the Pantheon. He'll be pretty motivated to turn this one around, I think. I, I think they'll actually stick him in the top order, maybe, yeah. maybe opening on number three. I think with the amount of money they've spent on him and the fact that his, his, his value is as a batter as a bowler he has his uses but he's kind of he'll be a bit of a fill-in they might use him like England did in the World Cup sort of a like where you can get him so you have a bit of leeway elsewhere uh, but I would not be at all surprised if he is Chennai Super Kings full-time captain by the time the season ends I mean Dhoni tried to leave it last season then Jadeja didn't have a good time so Dhoni came back in and in terms of the captaincy I don't think he's afraid of if he sees a viable successor of just like hopping out in like a, a weirdly low-key way, a bit like he did with the test captaincy. Uh, I, 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 there have been people suggesting that's what's being groomed. And I think if it's if it's going okay, they might just do that. But I think that I think Donny's the only wicketkeeper in the squad is the only thing. So Donny will have to stick around and can't retire altogether. But yeah. The, the big question is Stokes' knee, isn't it? I mean, the, the whole, it was bizarre with that series in New Zealand, the sort of constant backdrop where Stokes, I think, admitted he he had has a diagnosis on exactly what's wrong with him. He's not sharing it with anyone. He's sort of basically going to, plow on until the end of July and then sees a, an obvious period um, having retired from ODI cricket as well um, to get things sorted I assume over the winter and then um, you'd imagine he'd then come back with the um, test test tour to India in early 24 but Rob Key said he was he trusts Stokes to manage his body he'll, he'll know you know the situation and he will get himself ready for that second week in June uh, to begin the, the big stuff but he is under a bit of pressure, right? Not only is it is it a huge wage on his head, huge fee on his head, but as we say, he's not done that much in the IPL in recent years. And if he isn't there as a bowler, as a proper all-rounder, and he does have to manage the knee, even in the field as well, then suddenly that puts a lot of pressure on, on him as a batter, and he's not probably a top-end T20 batter, right? The numbers would suggest that he is a little bit up and down, and obviously he's a big match player, but there would be pressure on him, I think, if he, if he can't bowl. And even if and if he does bowl, there's pressure on him as well. Because if we're watching back home and his bosses are watching, 
And we're only really thinking, well, I'm only really thinking about making sure he's okay for June. And if he's tearing in Stokes under lights as he does, forgetting everything else except the moment, the visceral moment of that, that game at that, that time, and he has to change his direction. And the knee is, you know, clicking, but the, the adrenaline is pumping, then he's under pressure whether he does or he doesn't. Yeah, it will be so interesting. And I think, you know, you've seen this, McCullum was sort of saying through that New Zealand series, he trusts Fleming to make sure that everything's fine. He trusts the CSK medical staff, play there himself. But then it's, as you say, it's how much you trust them in the heat of the battle when Donny throws you the ball with yeah. 10 to defend or something like that. It's, it's tricky, Fleming's it? bonus for winning the, the IPL versus England's all-round <laughs> being fit for the first day the Ashes. It's like the idea of McCullum sending him increasingly threatening WhatsApps as the tournament goes on. Next up, Matt's favourite podcast ad. Uh, Tom Hickson of Smithfield is an award-winning online premium butcher that specialises in supplying the finest produce from around the world. With their exceptional selection of superb cuts, supplying high-end London and Mayfair restaurants, hotels and pitmasters across the UK, you can indulge in restaurant-quality meat delivered straight to your doorstep. Tom Hickson's carefully sourced ranges of Wagyu beef, Iberico pork, New Zealand lamb and free-range poultry from the best suppliers worldwide. So whether you're preparing a family feast or a fine dining experience for two, Tom Hickson's has got you covered with quality cuts for all your culinary needs, from juicy steaks and succulent ribs to savoury sausages and tender briskets. Enjoy an exclusive 15% off your order using the code WISDON15, which we'll leave in the description for you. Do you want to tell us your moment of the week? Me? Mm. Well, my, my moment of the week was um, helping to get the magazine to print last night. Uh, so that's my moment because it's been quite onerous. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it's a breeze. Other times it's a bit more of a challenge. This one was a challenge. Don't know why. Joe, Joe got ill. Joe was poorly for a few days. He had pus pockets on his tonsils. I don't um, think he wanted to share that. I don't know. I imagine... It is what it is. I, op- I merely report from the field. He's, he's yes. had the opportunity to share that and hasn't on the uh, Jim's got glandular fever. Uh, Joe, the designer, went away. It's just been a tough one. So, so you've had to do some work for once. So I've, I've had to really, really pull out all the stops, Ben. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, against my, my better nature. But anyway, it was, it's, been, it's been quite a tough one, but rewarding. It's a really, really good magazine. We'll talk about it next week. But um, the Ollie Robinson piece. Yes. I know. I'm coming to it. I, to I did think, has he forgotten what he said his moment of the week was? How often anyway. <laughs> must you think that? Yeah. Um, but Ollie, Ollie Robinson. have got it up here. So I spoke to Ollie Robinson in a, uh, like a hip-ish Hove coffee shop um, on Friday. Same place I interviewed Sarah Taylor a couple of years ago. Um, and I'd never met him before. Uh, and we had about an hour, hour and a bit or so. It just... Uh, picked up his daughter from uh, from nursery, dropped her off at home, and then popped up for a chat. And it was uh, quite an interesting and revealing conversation, really. Uh, as I said, I didn't know what to expect. Um, he's quite an enigmatic figure, really. Uh, he obviously had that that day in capital letters, the debut that turned hellish um, when you know. At lunch, he was an England cricketer and taking wickets on his test debut. And by the evening, he was handed a piece of paper and had to deliver a statement to the press uh, about historical tweets of a ugly, racist, homophobic nature and so on. Um, that, 
the spectre of that was in our interview and and he knew it was coming and I obviously had to speak to him about it and he didn't duck it and it almost felt like he wanted to talk about it just as he did to Vish um, who did a piece for the Almanac when he was slightly contentiously made one of the five cricketers of the year you can, you can go li- listen to the episode yeah, with Lawrence, Lawrence and Butch Lawrence Booth <laughs> colleague of ours of course at Wisdom uh, selected him as one of the five and Mark Butcher um, you know challenged him on it and you could understand both points of view on that. But anyway, it, it could have been, considering I didn't know him, it could have been quite a tricky conversation, really. Uh, and it could have been a, a sort of a spiky sort of affair, possibly. Uh, understandably, you don't want to be reminded or remembered for something that has happened two years ago. And then, of course, there was, I think, eight, nine years gap between the tweets, and then being unearthed into the public public domain. Um, nonetheless, he was very, very frank, very blunt, very upfront about it all. And he's not lacking for self-awareness and he's not lacking for intelligence. Um, uh, so we covered off that. But we also, um, I asked him about the, the, the technical minutiae of, of bowling in particular because, you know, he... I mean, he's basically the most, he's one of the most skillful bowlers in the world. And Anderson, kind of has been from day Anderson one. said after... In the middle of the New Zealand tour, he said he's the best bowler in the squad now. Um, and he might. It's interesting, actually, because I talk about Anderson in the article. And Robinson talks very fondly of Anderson. Anderson has almost taken Robinson under his wing a little bit, I think. And I think he is his pet project. I think he sees him as his heir apparent, obviously. But Anderson famously doesn't suffer falls, right? And there have been many people who have come through that dressing room and then out the other door with barely a nod from Jimmy Anderson. Um, but he has a real soft spot for, for Robinson and it comes down to respect. It comes down to an acknowledgement game recognizes game. How good stuff. your wobble scene ball. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so we spoke a lot about the technical side of the game. Um, and he gave me a, a blow by blow account of the Baba Azam first dismissal at Multown in the second test match. Uh, when Baba's on 75 and he's, you know, he's got there with barely a, a heartbeat, as you can imagine. But he's not played a shot against Robinson and, and he thinks, right, well, now's my time. So he goes to try and play a big drive and Robinson has landed it deliberately on a crack, which is about the width of a of a Rizzler. And it jags back and bowls him, clean bowls him. Day later, after Stokes has sort of opened up a run chase, as is his want, uh, he bowls him again. First time in, in Baba's first class career that anyone's clean bowled him twice in the same match. And he talks about it from a technical perspective, fascinatingly. You're a you're a seamer, yes, you know, semi-pro style seamer. Um, I, I am obsessed with Robinson because of this kind of stuff, though. Like right. The way he talks about it. I remember you, you. You will enjoy that bit. You won't mm. enjoy the sort of cod psychology, you know, wanky <laughs> nonsense that obviously, you know, is part of it. Uh, but you will enjoy the the, yeah. the 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 technical breakdown, right? And there's a play as well between him and Anderson. So Anderson's. Anson identified the reverse swing that was happening at Multan before Robinson did from mid-off. And Robinson says, oh, yeah, no, maybe it is. And Anderson says, right, do you remember where the crack is? Fifth stump, crack. And it's, again, yeah, That's tiny. Insane. And he says, right, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll land it in there then. <laughs> That's insane. And he does. Um, I, I remember before Robinson made his debut, didn't he, was it his debut or maybe the second test, test match? He basically said, this is how I'm going to get Kane Williams now. His debut, yeah. 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 Which is which is quite yeah. quite bold. And he got an actually, LLB yeah. in the second innings, and which kind of sums him up in in terms of his confidence, but also his skill. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting one, really. So, reading the quotes back, they they read quite punchily, I think, 
but they don't come across like that in conversation. And sometimes mm. you get this with interviewees. Sometimes you, and sometimes it works the other way that on, on the page, they look less, uh, declarative, if you like, than they are when you actually see somebody face to face. Um, I found him to be quite a, quite a, a very interesting, quite a soulful bloke, actually. But then there's also that thing that you have to add. There's a, and we've all done it. There's a, there's a, there's a weird, unnatural, faux kind of connection connectedness between you and this interviewee and it's a weird thing isn't it you know you do it for an hour you never met before you shake hands you sit down and then you have some for some reason the right to ask this person about you know deeply serious and and revealing and personal elements of their life what do you think yeah you know, it's a very it's an intimate question to ask a stranger and yet we have as the interviewer we have the, the right to do it um all of that said, I found him to be to be very engaging and very interesting. Um, and something else to take from it, he is obsessed with cricket, right? So again, and that probably feeds into to what you see. You know, that he is a technician. He is there's something quite surgical about the way that he goes about it. He said when they were in the field for 220 overs in New Zealand, he said he loved every single minute of it. And the word he used is sadistic. He, this is his actual quote. He says it's sadistic love of the grind and the dirt. Um, uh, he spent much of the flight home he went on holiday with his wife and his kid after the New Zealand tour and uh, he was just doing his homework on Smith and Labashane so he'd been watching that <laughs> amazing. tour amazing and his wife said to him like Ollie do we? Do you really have to he said I'm doing my homework <laughs> they're, here, they're here in 100 days he'd seen something on in- Instagram saying it's 100 days to the ashes he yeah. said, so he says right so, so he head oh. down 12-hour flight back from Dubai and... Imagine if you bumped into Robinson the Tube and he's just like going going, <laughs> going through his notes on different Aussie batsmen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's yeah, on a broader level, it's interesting because people who care about English cricket and English test cricket have been looking at the post-Anderson Broad era and just seeing tumbleweed and this sort of vain hope that Joffre might stay fit and... Even then, you know, you know that he's going to be bowling with a white ball a lot of his career. So, who are these players? Who are these players who are going to come through post Broaden Anderson? Who are going to be Red Bull specialists and going to even get close to honouring their legacy? Well, out of nowhere, really, this this slightly sort of cumbersome, plodding fella with a with a bit of a juicy past uh, who bowls eighty two on a good day is the sixth ranked test bowler in the world after 16 games out of nowhere is exactly it for a long time you had people who were earmarked as, as future anderson broad replacements from quite a young age and it didn't quite work out for them and then in out of nowhere robinson just by averaging 12 in division two for five years ends up being the guy yeah um, his, his numbers are ridiculous yeah they are completely totally across ridiculous. all all red bull cricket his numbers yeah. are absolutely absurd and wherever he's played as well moving on, on to australia and india Matt, what's your moment of the week? Uh, my moment of the week was Surya Kumar Yadav uh, being bowled by Ashton Agar for a third <laughs> consecutive first bowler of, a, of an ODI series, which, um, I, you know, before anyone sort of thinks I, I want this guy to fail, I love watching Surya Kumar bat. <laughs> I think he's probably one of my favourite players to watch when he's in full flow, as he is for most people. Incredibly stylish player. 
Um, brilliant to watch last year, but you know it's the old cliche about the game being the great leveler that you know it's a sort of um, it's a bit of pub chat, isn't it? How many runs would you score if you played international cricket? And the answer is almost <laughs> always almost none that is it that is exactly what i i felt but it's if like, i'd faced those three balls from stark stark and agar i couldn't have done any worse exactly. i might have, i might have even got a nick on one of them before yeah. i inside edged onto my leg stump you know um, it's, it's like every now and then with a golfer like a top rank golfer and they just fluff one completely top it goes six or eight yards it does happen zach johnson good golfer one stuff there's a whole YouTube thing of him doing it. And every now and then you get to say like the Beckham penalty, which like 30 yards over the bar. And you cannot do any worse than, than Sky on, across those three games, can you? Yeah. It's, it's literally impossible. And I love the whole um, sort of narrative and scrutiny around it as well, because he's, because of the fact he's not done that well in his ODI career. And because people are saying, you know, can this guy adapt to the foot? You know, was it a fluke? The fact he, averaged a million and struck at 300 in T20s. Um, and there's just been this huge amount of scrutiny and uh, I think he moved down the order for the third game. It's been a question that everyone's been asking. It's sort of been the talking point about India in this series. And he's literally only faced three balls. It's, just, <laughs> yeah. it's completely mad. Um, and the first two as well from Stark. I mean, the third less so. Um, just sort of, you know, I think it might have skidded through a bit. Trying though. to cut, cut half volley. Yeah, yeah. but it, I, the first two were seriously good balls. And, you know, it's, it, 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 I think it just sort of summed up quite nicely um, the whole sort of over-analysis that we can sometimes get drawn into in cricket. And, that yeah, as you say, literally any any clubby in the park, anyone who'd never held a bat before couldn't have done any worse than one of the great players in the world. He's I thought just, it was just he, a he, lovely moment. Yeah, he's just not facing off balls to say he's out of Nick. Um, and it's what Mark Wall said when he famously got four noughts in a row in Test cricket. He said, "Well, who, who knows? I'm in, in form or out form. I'm not, not there long enough." Um, Australia won that series two one. Mitch Marsh scored runs at the top of the order for Australia. Not totally clear what that means for the makeup of their eleven for the World Cup. David Warner batted at four in that final game, having missed the first two through injury. Um, ben Keshavas, thoughts on India's ODI setup in a home World Cup year? because it's not giving us Indian fans the same confidence England would have had in 2019. Uh, and now with two back-to-back series losses against Bangladesh away in Australia at home, it's certainly exposed some loopholes, especially in the middle order like 2019. I, I get what Matt's saying on how we can't draw too firm a conclusion on Sky's potential ODI cricket from this series. But I feel like it's a bit like with England that ODI number fives and maybe even sixes have to be a lot more versatile than they have than T20 finishers. I know that Sky's more than just a T20 finisher, but it's not worked out for him in in ODIs yet in a kind of similar way to England with Livingston. Yeah, and I, I guess there's also the thing with Sky is that he's actually not maybe not still quite never been really first first choice in ODIs even with his T20 form because India just have such a wealth of options. I think if everyone was fit, he actually would be maybe just in the fringes of that squad even because you'd have. Pant, in my opinion, should be a lock in that middle order. And Treyas I has a brilliant early record as well. And you've got guys like Sanju Samson kicking around uh, as well. I guess Sky's probably ahead of, ahead of Samson in the queue, but the other two, I think, would probably be ahead of him. And that will only be more the case after this. And they're both injured. But I mean, I will certainly be back for the World Cup. Um, I actually think the question for India is more over their, their general batting approach and their, their top order in particular. I think they uh, it seemed like the openers were attacking a lot more than they normally or than they used to, you know, you know, the India model heading into 2019 World Cup was that uh, Dawan, Rohit and Kohli would just get all of their runs would kind of not, not, you know, not, not completely block out the new ball, but they would be hoping that one of them would get 100 each time and aim for sort of 330 and then look to defend that with their 
excellent bowling attack. And I guess, I don't know, maybe that with that, with Bumrah's fitness being a bit less certain, that bowling attack is slightly weaker, I suppose. So they might feel they need a bit more batting to compensate uh, for it. But they've attacked a lot more. And against the quality of bowling that Australia had, especially Mitchell Stark was just phenomenal with uh, with the new ball this series. They, they weren't good enough to do it. Um, and I think uh, if I were India, I would actually think that the best thing you can do is just to try and get up to that sort of that defendable total, which is often still a pretty pretty hefty total, especially when you get to a World Cup knockup game. And and it's worth saying also, it wasn't that their issue in the World Cup last time wasn't that they attacked too much. Maybe you could say the the top order was so consistent that their middle and lower order hadn't had the practice. But I don't think the the solution to that is for your top order to just throw away their wickets. I guess. Uh, so yeah, there are a few questions there, but I still imagine that they'll be able to sort them out. Uh, come World Cup time. And the other thing as well is that whenever India get knocked out of a World Cup, having, you know, dominated bilateral cricket in be- in between times, the fans say, you know, we don't care at all about these bilaterals. We just want to win World Cups. And then India start losing a couple bilaterals. It's like, oh no, the, the, the world's crashing down. Mm. This, this is awful kind of thing. So. Um, I don't know what it means, but Shubman Gill hit a really nice shot, didn't he, in the third game? I spent two, day, two, two days, two days, <laughs> felt like it, felt like it. Two minutes in this office. So we have adjacent offices. You know, I'm, I'm in the grown-up office next door and then you lot fiddle around in here came in and we saw one ball together didn't we yes yeah. and it was obscene what he did and it is it's it's gone right in there in lock, locked in there now in the brain I ne- I'll never forget that shot it's hard to explain it but the, it's the economy of movement again isn't it with Gil you know he does it almost like a pastiche of Sharma he's almost sort of out Sharmaing Sharma and it's that little short arm flick jab thing it was off Stark off Stark over off Stark, mid wicket for six straight Seeming in as he does into middle and off, slightly fuller of length than he'd ideally want, but then often that cleans up, cleans players up anyway. And he's just, yeah, just sort of casually flicked the wrist and sent it 20 yards back, straight mid wicket. Just a joke player, absolute joke player. And then I did my impression, didn't I, of, of this sort of the, the, the punch, the punch. Like, when he controls it inside himself, it's just re- that ridiculous shot that he plays against all quicks. Where it's barely even more than a than a forward block, you know. There's a sort of Damien Martin element to it as well, but it is just a phenomenal, phenomenal player. He's going to be right up there, I think, over the next ten years. I can't see many players touching that level of class. Uh, I just hope that you know he, he does it in all the all the formats. You know, they've clearly earmarked him as, as the Test match opener for the next next few years. And, yeah, he's not not yet achieved anything in in the Test game, but I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna mm. do great things. I mean, it, it's March twenty third, and he's already got five international hundreds this year, so he, he's he's having a good year so far. Are you or your club looking to live stream your cricket matches this season? Uh, look no further than Sport Radar's Frogbox streaming kit to turn your fixtures into a professional quality broadcast. Frogbox is the all-in-one streaming kit that makes broadcasting live cricket accessible and affordable for your clubs, schools and leagues. Designed for recreational cricket, the Frogbox solution is a lightweight, portable and affordable product designed for clubs of all levels. Integrated with the Play Cricket Scorer app, all you need to do on match day is set up the portable video capture kit and live score the match on the app. The automated technology will take care of the rest. Stream to YouTube with high-quality graphics, generate highlights of your greatest moments and connect with your community like never before. Frogbox professionally showcases cricket at any level while offering new revenue and fan engagement opportunities for clubs. 
The automated graphics package has multiple displays and advertising opportunities available, engaging the end user and delivering high quality visibility for your corporate partners. Capture those special moments with automated highlight generation and join the streaming revolution with Frogbox. Visit their website at frogbox.live for further information and start reimagining the digital match day experience this season. Um, my moment of the week now, uh, which was from the PSL final, which was absolutely incredible. Um, Lahore calendars won by one run. Zaman Khan bowling a near-perfect final over as Lahore defended 200. But the, mo- the moment was Shaheen promoting himself to number seven without telling anyone. So Weiss is walking into bat. And Shaheen basically sprints down the stairs in front of him. And we just like, what's going on here? Really? Uh, Shaheen then hits 44 or 15 um, as they win by one run, um, which was absolutely incredible. Uh, the, he was brilliant. The final was brilliant. And the crowd were well up for it. So that was thoroughly enjoyable. I, I, had, I knew that he'd promoted himself. I didn't know that Wiesa was, or Wiesa was sort of halfway there, <laughs> ready to go as he bounds. But I'm going in, lads. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm diving in. Shaheen, I don't think, was totally in control of his emotions for much of this game. And I think was leaning quite a lot on Wiesa and Sam Billings during the run chase. Right. So Afridi hits his extraordinary innings. Then you're like, right, Afridi's now got the new ball. He's totally charged up. He's going to win the game by himself. And he goes for like 35 from his first two overs. Uh, full, full toss after full toss searching for that magic ball doesn't quite work but yeah a brilliant game uh on to the wpl uh delhi capitals are the first side to qualify for the wpl final they had to engineer a fairly extreme net run rate turnaround to uh overtake mumbai at the top of the table to be the only side to directly qualify for the final alice capsi is going very well there she's striking 159 and averaging less than 20 with the ball um, that Delhi team is absolutely stacked. I think they fielded a, a side with 11 internationals the other day. Um, having Verma, Lanning, Capsi, uh, Rodrigues, Cap and Jonathan feels like um, feels like cheating. Capsi a had a bit. good game, right? I didn't She's see really, it. Really good. She, in the last saw, game, saw she, the was, numbers. She, she took a threefer and then hit a 30-odd. But it's, what, what's been really impressive with her is she's played very different types of innings depending on the situation. So when Lanning basically plays the anchor role, um, the, the kind of the kids around Lanning just whack it. Uh, Verma's done really well and Capsi as well. But in this other game, she moved down the order, I think basically just to give the others a go because they hadn't really had much of a bat before the final. Um, and she just controlled the, the run chase when they were ahead of the rate. So that's quite impressive. I think one um, of the, the really interesting things in the WPL has been seeing um, some of the Australian women perform sort of when they're taken out of that super team. Obviously, we've sort of seen various players like Meg, Meg Lanning, obviously for Delhi has been unbelievably consistent um, as you would probably expect. But then someone like Ash Gardner had a really slow start to the tournament. And it's sort of, I think she um, came good right at the end, but once her team were pretty much already gone, um, and yeah, I think it's been been really sort of fascinating to track, you know, you, you sort of, maybe it's too too small a sample and it's only eight games or something like that in the group stage to, to know for sure. But it's it's been quite interesting seeing them taking out, taken out of what has been an unbelievable team and seeing, seeing which of them are sort of able to be the um, stalwarts, I guess, of, a, of an individual team. And just on Delhi, we should give a, a quick uh, hat tip to friend of the pod, Ben Jones, as well, for helping assemble that team in the auction because it, it does look, compared to some of the others on paper, especially like he's done a pretty good job. Nicholas wrote in to say, I've loved following the first season season of the WPL with fewer teams and fewer matches I've remained interested from the beginning to the end in a way I've never managed with the IPL uh, I have a couple of questions for the podcast one more serious than the other um, in today's match this is from a few days ago Mumbai managed to bowl 20 overs without once calling on their numbers 8, 9 or 10 batters 
which I imagine is fairly unusual. Uh, they were able to do so because they have so many all-rounders in their top seven. Um, it strikes me the women's game overall boasts a much higher proportion of all-rounders in the men's game, and I wondered why this is. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Ben, we'll go to you for that, but I'll ask the other question at the same time. This is the more serious um, one, isn't this it? Is, this is the serious question. Given their similar-sounding names, is it a coincidence that the UP Warriors kit is so reminiscent of what Wario wears in Nintendo's various Mario games? Um, do you want to take the second one first? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this, this is great, isn't it? The, the, the UP Warios. And I think that maybe there is a, a strand to be taken here as we're talking about, you know, T3 franchises around the world having a shared identity. Could they not all just all be lifted from, from various Mario Kart characters? I just love the way that Yaz said, you can do this one <laughs> at the end of that. That's nicely done. Could, could, could we have like the, the Kerala, Kerala Donkey Kongs? I don't know. The, uh, what, why um, are you looking at me? What, do you, you're not a Mario Kart fan? I'm out of my depth here as well. Okay. I've never well, really played. It's, it's a great we, question. We got, we got an email the other day from a chap called Alan from Exeter. And the line was, how can you be so profoundly nerdy but effortlessly free-spirited? Uh, I think that might have been directed at you, that one, Gardner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then on the all-rounders question, I suppose, uh, it, is, it is a tough thing to work out. I think sometimes it can actually speak to... Um, an overall lack of depth in the domestic talent pool in competition. You had this issue with the early seasons of the Kia Super League where, um, you know, so, so I think Marazan Cap at that point, she her all-round credentials were kind of yet to be fully established and yet she end, ended up batting in the top three or four in that competition. It's just because if you are, first, if you're very, ta- if you're very good at sport, you'll often be able to be good at the two things. And maybe if there's just a, more of a gap between the the best and the and the rest that's what's going to happen but also if you if you are spending all that time around um you know if you're if you're a professional player at that stage and you're spending loads of time around in the nets against Shabd Mismal and Dene Van Niekerk and whoever else um then you're going to also have a lot of practice getting good at batting versus some players who are you know uh, at that at that point in the Kia Super League they were you know part-timers um and that meant that you had lots of players who were getting shifted up the order or lots of you know part-time bowlers were actually some of the better bowlers in that competition like fancy it might be a a similar thing here but there are still lots of all-rounders that you see in the world game um and it's it is it is hard to work out and maybe it's just sort of a, a generational thing and we'll see in in a few years time that it's it's not so much but i don't have a an exact theory on that mm. yet i suppose moving on we had a question directed at matt from andrew who who asked alzari joseph seems to take a, a big step forward in t20 cricket in the last year what do you put that down to uh south africa played uh west indies in an odi series this week uh Temba Bavum scored 100 in the first game. Shai Hope scored 100. We had a question about him moving down to four, which has worked quite well so far. And Heinrich Larsson hit a hit the fourth fastest ODI 100 for Safka in the series finale. But Matt, very quickly on Alzari Joseph, why, why, why has he got better? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I mean, he, I, I think um, he was someone who came into the West Indies setup at a very young age and hasn't necessarily always found it that easy. But it, it, it's just been really interesting the last 12 months, just how much more T20 cricket he's played. I don't think he played a T20 international until about, um, I think, maybe mid midway through last year. Um, and then did pretty well at the T20 World Cup. I mean, in terms of raw attributes, he's got pretty much everything you want. He's very tall, um, gets it down there quick, a lot of bounce. You know, it is pretty much an ideal T20 bowler. So And never celebrates. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely marvellous. So as much as anything, I think it's more that, you know, it, 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 it makes a lot more sense that he's succeeding than it did when he was struggling to me. Uh, but yeah, he looks like a really, really talented bowler. And I guess, um, yeah, the, the key for West Indies is making sure that he sort of stays, stays available and fit in all three formats and um, still gets the opportunity to go off and play for Gujarat and earn his money as well. Mm. 
Uh, I've watched hardly any cricket in the last week, as you can tell, but I did see Brandon King get 70-odd at mm. opening the batting in the first ODI, I think it was. Uh, he looked like a really good player. Um, again, as often with West Indies players, the, the record numbers-wise doesn't really jump out at you, but he's 28-year-old Jamaican lad and... Um, he was around the under-19 setup, so he's known to the game in the West Indies, but he's only recently sort of emerged from the pack. Uh, it was a runnable 70. He was very unlucky the way, the way that he got out, just angling one to third man, got an inside edge onto the stumps, and he, he looks like a really good player, I thought. Uh, and they fancy him up top as well. I like having Hope down at four. I think it suits his game more. He, he doesn't need to... He's not the, the quickest of scorers, but you see how well Root does in the middle orders. It's actually, you're asking him to perform a, a similar role there and it allows you to, to pick someone like King up It's up a mystery, top. isn't it, what happened to Hope as a test player, mm. really? So average 25 from 38 games with, with 200s in one match at Leeds and yet just couldn't crack it. And he's made 14 ODI 100s. I mean, similar to... Playing in a very technically orthodox sort of way. To me, a similar mystery is how Markram has played 48 ODIs. He's not scored 100 yet and averages 28. Yeah. He should be he, he should be your dream ODI top order bat, but it's, it's still not, not worked out for him there. Um, Great news on Bavuma, mm. by the way. Um, a nod to Dan Gallon's thing mm. in The Guardian on him. I don't know that, if you yeah, read that or not. That was awesome. But, but it was very good indeed. A good writer is Dan and he tackles tricky subjects and he does them well with a bit of courage. And it chimed with what we've been talking about on this podcast before that there's there's a murkiness around some of the discourse I think with Temba Bavuma and it's uh and it's a difficult thing to address but certainly it's undeserved when you look at what he's done for South African cricket in the last two or three years uh and he's got great dignity and intelligence and a lot of class as a player and it's now beginning to show show you know that 170 odd in the test match was a very significant moment for him personally, but also symbolically. And then to follow it up with 140 odd uh, from 110 balls or something, whatever it was in that ODI the other day. It's great to see. Um, and hopefully people can now start recognising that he's a, he's a good player. He's a proper good player. Mm. Forget uh, all the rest. He's a very good player. Yeah. Um, and also hasn't got the opportunities he probably deserves in ODI cricket. He's got a brilliant ODI record and hasn't actually played that much of it. Averages 50, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, another very good player, Gerald Kurtzia, who's, who's only quick. 22. Bowled 92 miles per hour, uh, got good slow balls. He's good. Yeah, um, you wouldn't fancy that. Would um, not fancy that. New Zealand thumped Sri Lanka in the second test of that series, uh, which means that Chris Hill was Sri Lanka finished fourth in the World Test Championship. Um, ben, very quickly, what's your moment of the week? Uh, well, we're talking about the most skillful bowls in the world. <laughs> and uh, from the looks of three balls that went semi-viral on Twitter, Darren Bravo's got to be right up there. Uh, He's, uh, he's, he's barely bowled in his career before today. He's taken four first class, or before this game, taken four first class wickets. And he's what? In his, it's 32, I think. Um, and then brings himself on as uh, Trinidad Tobago captain against Guyana uh, early on with the new ball. Um, and just bowls, uh, just one of the most incredible in-swingers you'll ever see to, to Kevin Anderson. Uh, traps him in front. And then basically he doesn't really bowl again for the rest of the innings. Takes like one wicket. Uh, next day, Guyana batting again. Uh, Kevin Anderson comes out again. And Darren Burrow brings himself on again and does the exact same thing. And at this point, Anderson must be thinking like, what, what is this vendetta this guy has against me? He hasn't bowled his career. He's just saved up these two absolutely magic balls to get me early on. He does then do, uh, do it again one time. This is probably the best ball to take his third wicket. Uh, just got me thinking about Bravo, just interesting, interesting cricketer, obviously, after, what, 26 tests. I think in his 26 tests, he played 
an unbelievable innings in New Zealand. This is uh, not very quickly. A, a double, double hundred. We, we were done, weren't we? <laughs> they, they, we were done. It was nice. It was a nice little bon mot. They we got angels down. on their moments of the week. Phil on Robinson yeah, you, about you, 10 minutes you, of the podcast. You, you, yeah, but that's you, actually relevant. But you, you at the moment, and now you're talking about Darren Bravo's Darren Bravo unfulfilled scene. desk career. <laughs> anyway, he made, he made, he made 200s uh, in a week in the game before this game. And maybe, hopefully, there's a route back for him because he's a player that I've enjoyed watching. And it was sad to see him fall away the way he did. I don't know no, where we'd be without you, sweetheart. <laughs> um, some other news this week. Tim Payne has retired from professional cricket. Oh, got time for Tim Payne's retirement. <laughs> but that was two seconds. Tim Payne's um, rights of man. And then Alim Dar, this, this, this broke me. Alim Dar has stepped back from the ICC's elite panel of umpires. Stop it. He's only 54. So he's got, in my eyes, he's got his best umpiring years ahead of him. He's also um, in um, peak physical condition. I remember I went to, I was in Pakistan for the T20 series in September that England played out there and Alim, I spotted him. He basically, you know, those uh, sort of smartwatches or fitness watches, mm. I think I can only assume to get his steps up, basically spent a long time at the move and pick hotel in Karachi, marching up and down the side of the swimming pool <laughs> and then occasionally challenging the travelling press to games of table he's tennis. He's practising just walking to square leg and back. <laughs> <laughs> what an image um, also an umpires there's a very funny moment in the South Africa West Indies ODI the other day where <laughs> uh, a decision uh, given out on the field was it out on the field out on the field Erasmus is the umpire goes upstairs and during like the long pause for the, the broadcaster to get Hawkeye on screen Mark Nicholas is, is filling time and Mark Nicholas says I promise you he's one of the great umpires in the game's history but said with total sincerity and then the ball mister starts like absolutely miles <laughs> <laughs> the timing was absolutely brilliant um, oh boy what, what would we do without bilateral cricket um, uh, Tim writes in to say not question but on the European Cricket League I too was duped into watching what I thought was the final on a different day the TV guide said it was the final but it was only the Group F final or something it's still going on so my moment of the week last week I think was that I uh, spent a portion of my Saturday evening watching what I thought was the European Cricket League final it turns out it turns out it wasn't the final it was the Group D final <laughs> Spent, That's excellent. Um, spent more on more time on Yaz's moment week last week than on moment week this week. <laughs> let it go. I'll let it go now, yeah. This yeah. is thrilling stuff. Um and finally, um a word for Ashley Chandra Singer. Um twenty one years old. He's currently batting in the Sheffield Shield final for Victoria, where Victoria have ended day one on hundred and ninety four for eight. Chandra Singer opened the batting and he's finished day one not out on 46 of 266 balls. That's he hasn't marvelous. even got to his 50 and he's been at the crease for a full 90 overs, no rain delays or anything. They got the full allocation of overs in. So a, a truly remarkable effort from Chandra Singer there. Um, but that is that is pretty much it for today's show. Um, as I said, we're not going to do a full IPL preview, but we will be doing two county preview-ish shows over the next two weeks. Um, so get your questions in. Um, ahead of them Uh, thanks Phil thanks Matt thanks Ben this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast we'll be back early next week Sports Social Podcast Network